This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Last night was a really fun, energetic, high-energy high night. I mean, we had a great drag show at, at 9 o'clock till 11. You know, everyone was having a good time. We come here to have community, to have a safe place to, to gather, to, to drink together, to cheers together, to, to have a good night. And, and last night was that until it wasn't. You just heard from Michael Anderson, who was one of the survivors of the mass shooting in Colorado Springs at Club Q. And we'll hear more about what he has to say because he describes the details and the chaos and the mass confusion. And it's genuinely disturbing. But let's talk about the details overall, because I think that as most people already know, this was a hate crime that was incited by hate mongers online with very large platforms. And this isn't something that's going to get them to rethink their rhetoric and do better. This is exactly what they wanted. So what happened in Colorado Springs? Well, as ABC News explains, a 22-year-old man has been charged with hate crimes for allegedly killing five people and injuring 25 others in a mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado, officials said. The suspect, Anderson Lee Aldrich, allegedly began shooting with a long rifle as soon as he walked into Club Q in Colorado Springs late Saturday night, Colorado Springs Police Chief Adrian Vasquez said. At least two people whom authorities described as heroes then confronted Aldrich and fought with him, which saved more lives, police said. Aldrich had considerable ammo and was extremely well-armed, Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers told Good Morning America on Monday. So just stop for a moment and think about how bad this could have been. He was planning to do mass damage and he did a lot of harm, but had those two heroes not intervened, more people could have been killed. And at the time that I record this video, we don't know all of the victims, but two of the three of them are trans. So this is a tragedy that could have possibly been prevented had this individual not been whipped into a frenzy by hate mongers online. Now some additional details about the suspect here. So according to NPR, a year and a half earlier, the suspect allegedly threatened his own mom with a homemade bomb, forcing all of their neighbors to evacuate. But yet Colorado's red flag laws weren't triggered and he ended up evading the law, which led to him legally purchasing the weapon that he used at Club Q. Now the suspect is also reportedly the grandson of former GOP lawmaker from California, Randy Vopel, who compared the January 6th insurrection to the Revolutionary War. So when you have influences like that in your life who celebrate violence as a good thing, well, it's no surprise that this is what happens, especially if you already have a history of violence and you hold your own mother hostage. So you can see how somebody like that could easily be whipped into a frenzy by hate mongers online who claim that queer people are endangering children in the United States of America. We'll get to that in a second here. But first, let's get to Michael Anderson because he's going to share what happened. And just to give you a warning, this is very disturbing, but he thought he was going to die. 
So he explains what happened when the shooter came in. Let's listen. I was behind the bar working um, when I heard a few loud uh, shots go off. Um, I didn't know what it was at first, but I looked up and I saw the silhouette or shadow of a guy holding a, what looked like a rifle or some sort of long gun. And at that point, the shots kept going off. Um, so I, I ducked behind the bar. Um, and once I was on the ground, glass was just flying all around me. Um, and and that, at that point, I, I really got scared for my life. What was your plan? I mean, what are you thinking? Did you make a plan to hide? Were you going to fight this guy? What, what, did yeah. you, what was going through your mind? Uh, I definitely did not want to fight this guy, uh, for sure. That's I'm not really like that. Um, but um, I was just, I wanted to get out of there. I, 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 I was scared. I was trapped. I wanted to get out of that building. So I ran to the, the, the patio, and I was hiding between, the, there's a space between a booth and a wall, and I crouched right there on the ground in between that spot. And a, a group of individuals had uh, managed to open a closed door to an exterior patio and they all filed out and then they had to hop over a privacy fence to escape the club um, once they all got out the door shut and they were holding it shut they were holding it so no one else you know, the shooter or anybody could get out I didn't know that but I, I if I had run to try and get out, I wouldn't have been able to get out so essentially I was trapped in in that small little tiny room um, and it, it, I had a, a co-worker with me and another woman with me, and we were all just huddled together, just praying that it would end. Did he come in that room? Um, all I saw, I popped my head up of, over the booth, and I saw, like, the barrel of a gun, like, like poked into the patio room. I saw just the, the tip of it, and it was at that point that I legitimately thought I was about to get shot. Like, I didn't know, I felt like a fish trapped in a barrel. I, I didn't know where to go. I, I I didn't have my phone, I didn't have anything. So I was just so scared I wouldn't be able to talk to my mom or talk to anybody, um, uh, you know, in that situation. It's so terrifying. Yeah. Um, after that passes, you're still hearing the gunshots and then they uh, stop, right? So once I saw the, the rifle enter the room, I just put my head down and, and yeah. prayed. Uh, 10 seconds or so later, it got silent. All you could hear was uh, the, the, the dance music, you know, bumping through the club. Uh, but it was really, really eerie because normally when you hear that, you hear people, you know, having a good time. It was dead silent in there. Um, so it was silent for about a minute or two before I chose to get up and I, I, I didn't want to be trapped there anymore. I needed to do something. I needed to get out of there. So I got up and, and I went inside and that's when I saw the, the shooter being beat up by those very, very, very brave patrons or whoever. Were they on top of him at that point? They were, they were kicking him. He was lying on the ground. They were kicking him, punching him, yelling at him. And I don't know who that was, but I am so grateful. I will be grateful for whoever that is for the rest of my life yeah. because this could have been very different for me. Yeah. I can't imagine how terrified he must have been. I can't imagine how stunned and traumatized everyone who was there will be for the rest of their lives. It's just genuinely heartbreaking to know what happened and i don't really have the words to comfort you it's just sad i feel nothing but heartbreak and um sadness for all of the victims there now let's not mince words when we talk about this this is the fault of individuals like matt walsh 
and Shia Raichik of Libs of TikTok. And I need people to understand that it's not like this is an accident. And now all of a sudden they're going to rethink the rhetoric that they use and stop spreading lies about queer people. No, this is what they wanted. When queer people die, no matter however they die, that's a victory for them. So if they can whip lunatics up into a frenzy and get them to do hate crimes against queer people, that's a victory for them. This is what they wanted. If they can deny gender affirming care to trans youth and get them to kill themselves, that's a victory for them. They want queer people dead, which is why they do this. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later in a different video, but we need to be very clear. Blood is on the hands of individuals like Matt Walsh and Chaya Raichik of Libs of TikTok, who was already fearmongering about a different organization from the same state mere hours after this mass shooting took place. So she was fearmongering about an organization that hosts drag shows for queer youth, suggesting that this was a danger to them. And contrary to popular belief, Raichek doesn't just share videos of what other people says, she doxes people and encourages harassment against them, and the lies that she spread led to Boston Children's Hospital getting a bomb threat, and people haven't been following this story, but it's still happening. This week alone, Boston Children's Hospital had to be evacuated three different times due to bomb threats over their gender-affirming care that they provide to trans youth. So the reaction from these folks isn't going to be, oh my God, I can't believe that my words could, could have possibly influenced someone to do this. They're celebrating this. You know that that's what they're doing. And the right is largely trying to pretend as if they're not culpable and the blood isn't on their hands, but it is. When you lie about an entire community and tell people that they are a danger to children, this is what happens. Somebody tries to take up action against them to protect children or whatever this idiot's motive was. So we'll get into that more in a different video, uh, video, but this is just tragic and heartbreaking now. And I wanted to share the story here. And I absolutely feel horrible for the families of the victims and the victims themselves who just wanted to be in a space with other queer people where they could be themselves and not have to hide who they are. But this idiot infiltrated their space, murdered them, and now those lives are gone, never to come back. It's just, it's truly heartbreaking to think about, but this is something that unfortunately is going to continue to keep happening so long as right-wing hate mongers like Chaya Raichik and Matt Walsh continue to lie about queer people. And again, it's not just an unintended consequence of their rhetoric. It's exactly what they want. I previously alluded to the fact that right-wing politicians and pundits are absolutely responsible for the mass shooting that took place at Club Q in Colorado Springs because for months now, they have been screaming at the top of their lungs about the danger that LGBTQ plus people poses to children and others. And now to see violence being taken up against this community, for them to react in the way that they're reacting, it's predictable, yes, but it's still so disturbing and they really have a lot of nerve. So let's look at Bobo first and foremost. So she tweeted this out as a lawmaker from the state of Colorado where this tragedy took place. The news out of Colorado Springs is absolutely awful. This morning, the victims and their families are in my prayers. This lawless violence needs to end and end quickly. Now, some of the victims who died are trans. Lauren Boebert, let me remind you, has used her position of power and influence to demonize trans people ruthlessly and spread lies 
about this community. Let's look at a couple of examples of what she's tweeted. Quote, trans women, also known as men, will be forced to sign up for the draft. Looks like Joe Biden has just officially confirmed what a woman is and what a woman isn't. She also tweeted out, the so-called Equality Act forces girls to share locker rooms with boys, destroys girls' sports, takes children away from their parents, and forces doctors to perform taxpayer-funded abortions. She shared a picture of Dr. Rachel Levine, who is the assistant health secretary, who happens to be a trans woman, saying, welcome to woke medicine, America, because I guess that if you're trans, then you practice uh, woke medicine. I don't even know what that means. She also shared a clip of her appearance on Fox News, claiming the American people deserve to know if the Biden regime is paying for the mutilation of children who are gender confused. Now, since she focuses on trans people so much, you would think that she knows that trans people aren't being mutilated specifically trans children aren't being mutilated she knows what she's saying is not truthful she knows that what she's doing is stoking hatred and hysteria about this community but yet she has the audacity to claim that she's praying for the victims go fuck yourself lauren bubbert you are a disgusting pathetic excuse for a person and you should be ashamed of yourself. If you actually felt any sympathy whatsoever, then right now you'd be introspective and think maybe I'm at least partially culpable for the disgusting rhetoric that I've been using against this community that's already under attack. Now, I think that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really had the best response to Bobo here saying, you have played a major role in elevating anti-LGBT plus hate rhetoric and anti-trans lies while spending your time in Congress blocking even the most common sense gun safety laws. You don't get to thoughts and prayers your way out of this. Look inward and change. And AOC is exactly correct here. For for someone who has spent months demonizing this community to pretend as if you feel bad for them when your rhetoric has led to this, I mean, the nerve. You have the audacity to make that tweet, Lauren Boebert. The best move for her right now is to just hide her face and shut the fuck up after the things that she's said about trans people and LGBTQ plus people more broadly. But she's not alone. So we're going to get to some of the responses from the right. But first, let's see what they've been saying with regard to LGBTQ plus people. Just give you a little bit of a taste of the lies and hysteria they've been spreading for the past couple of months. So let's say you were interested in sexualizing children and unfortunately some people are, what would you do? You might have a drag queen story hour. If you don't see that as teetering on the edge of losing civilization, then you and I just disagree. Pernicious and sick drag queen story hours. Libs of TikTok, one of the most informative accounts on Twitter, and because it is so informative, it keeps getting banned. Adult male uh, putting on women's clothing uh, and dancing and talking about sexual themes with other people's children. Drag queen story time. Don't want them in preschool teaching them to twerk. Why would any parent allow their child to be sexualized by an adult man with a fetish for kids? A sort of pedophilic, predatory, farm system that the groomers have set up. They want to sexualize children. This is all designed to put a wedge between parents and their children. It's up to all of us to fight back against that tooth and nail. What's happened to us? I mean, honestly, what has happened to us? Throw them in prison and, and whenever they get out, if they do get out, put them on the sex offender registry for life. A reckoning is coming. If anyone here is more like Hitler, most like Hitler, one could argue, it's these people abusing children. Stopping it is not a gentle or a painless process. The farther along the cancer is, the more aggressive you have to be in fighting. People should push back against this. And of course, people should arm themselves with the literature and the people in their own words who have advocated for this uh, uh, deeply disturbing sexualization of children. 
Yeah, people should definitely arm themselves. I agree with that. So ask yourself this, when you see that rhetoric and those lies, just get a small taste of it. Is it really that surprising that some deranged lunatic might be worked into a frenzy and actually take up arms against this community? No, of course it's not surprising. It's predictable. Many of us predicted that this, this would happen. There's been nonstop harassment against LGBTQ plus people, queer spaces for months now as a result of hate mongers like Chaya Raichik of Libs of TikTok and Matt Walsh. So it's not shocking to see that all of that hate has led to this. And it's not like demonizing queer people is a new thing for the right. It's just that over the course of the last couple of months, they've gotten a little bit louder and they've kind of honed the demonization to where rather than trying to attack queer adults, they're trying to claim that really queer adults are a danger to children. And so if, you know, we tell you that they're a danger to children and somebody takes up violence against queer people to protect children, then perhaps, you know, maybe that's justified. That's not what they're saying, but that's the subtext. But of course, in response to this tragedy, they're not taking responsibility. In fact, they're apoplectic that anyone would dare blame them. Can you believe that? So let's see what they said here. Matt Walsh tweeted out, leftists are using a mass shooting to try and blackmail us into accepting the castration and sexualization of children. Again, lying in the tweet. These people are just beyond evil. I have never felt more motivated to oppose everything they stand for with every fiber of my being. Despicable scumbags. Candace Owen tweeted, I just want to make sure I'm correct in understanding that the left is using the tragedy in Colorado to make the argument that unless conservative get on board with experimenting on children's genitals with puberty blockers, then nightclub shootings will continue to happen. Ben Shapiro writes, the quest by the Democratic leadership and media to link a horrifically evil shooting at a Colorado gay club to anyone who doesn't support a progressive social agenda is ongoing and terrible for the country. It's a cynical game only one side plays and it's trash. So with the straight face, they're denying culpability. They're honestly saying, who, me? You think I'm responsible? I mean, why would I be responsible? I've only been lying and demonizing this community for months, claiming that children's hospitals are mutilating the genitalia of kids. But I mean, like, why would you think I'm responsible for all of this hate after I've whipped people up, people up into a frenzy? I, I mean, they are so shameless. And in that compilation that we watched, they mentioned libs of TikTok and of course, Chaya Raichik, the owner of this account, is also denying culpability, but you can draw a direct line between what she tweets about and things that happen in the, in the real world. So, for example, a data analyst pointed out that hospitals don't generally get a ton of engagement on Twitter. That all changes, however, when right-wing propagandist libs of TikTok tweets about them, resulting in a deluge of mostly hostile replies and mentions. Here's what that looks like in graph form, and you see the activity. They add, unsurprisingly, the same thing happens when libs of TikTok tweets about a school or a school district. The school or district's previously obscured Twitter account gets swarmed by libs of TikTok's followers. And the same is true with Matt Walsh when he specifically targets hospitals. So they mention hospitals here, but let's talk about Boston Children's Hospital. So that was the first target when it comes to children's hospitals by these right-wing propagandists. Now, they claim that because Boston Children's Hospital provides gender-affirming care to trans youth, they were mutilating the genitals and castrating 
children at this hospital. So these lies, of course, whipped people up into a frenzy, which led to Boston Children's Hospital getting a bomb threat. And the bomb threats have not stopped. Within the last week, Boston Children's Hospital had to be evacuated three different times due to constant bomb threats. So correlation does equal causation. And again, just hours after the anti-LGBTQ plus shooting in Colorado, Libs of TikTok was already fear-mongering about a different organization from the same state where the shooting took place, claiming that there was a drag show that was supposedly endangering children. So I need you to understand that these people know exactly what they're doing. They know the effect that they have in the real world when they spread these lies. And they are lies. They know that they're lying. Just last week, Matt Walsh was fact-checked on Joe Rogan's podcast, spreading lies about trans children. They know exactly what they're doing and the blood is on their hands. But if you think that knowing that the blood is on their hands, and they do know this, by the way, but if you think that knowing that the blood is on their hands is going to lead to them reevaluating their life choices and being a little bit introspective and perhaps reining in the lies, no, because again, this is what they wanted. If you think that they're going to feel bad that queer people died as a result of their rhetoric, they're not, because this is what they want. They want queer people to die. They've made that abundantly clear. And any way that they can get queer people to die is a victory for them. They don't care how it happens, right? If they can whip up some lunatic into a frenzy and they do a mass shooting, that's a win for them. If they can deny gender-affirming care to trans youth, knowing that that increases suicidal ideation and these trans kids end up killing themselves, that's a win for them. They want queer people dead. These are genocidal maniacs, and people need to understand that. It's not a coincidence that hate crimes have increased. It's not a coincidence that queer spaces have been attacked and harassed and infiltrated by homophobes and transphobes. This is all happening because these propagandists are inciting this hatred. These people, Libs of TikTok, Matt Walsh, Candace Owens, they know exactly what they're doing. They know the effect that their rhetoric has, and they're not going to stop because a hate crime was committed. They're going to only continue because this is validation that what they're doing works, right? So what we have to do is push back fiercely. So the most obvious question is, why did Anderson Lee Aldrich shoot 30 people? And the truth is, we don't know. We do know he was clearly a troubled person. You just heard Tucker Carlson with a straight face, mind you, feign ignorance over the motivations of the Club Q shooter. So after you, for months, have been non-stop fear-mongering over LGBTQ plus people, trying to equate all queer people with groomers and pedophiles, now you're going to feign ignorance and pretend as if you don't know what whipped that lunatic into a frenzy? And he is playing dumb when, in the same episode, he did more fear-mongering about LGBTQ plus people. As NBC News writer Ben Collins explains, we are one day removed from a shooting at an LGBT club where five people are dead, and Tucker's first segment is him saying the LGBTQ cult is sexualizing children. Weeks ago, he told his viewers to fight back against the LGBTQ community, no matter what the law says. So he has a lot of nerve playing dumb after he effectively told his viewers to break the law. And he thinks that you're stupid enough to not think that he doesn't know exactly what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He knows that his words are helping to incite violence against the queer community. He wants you to think that queer people, all queer people, are groomers and pedophiles, but they're not. 
Queer people, just like everyone else, are normal human beings that have the capacity to feel hope and pain and happiness and anger. Let's listen to Joshua. This was an individual who was a patron at Club Q on the night of the shooting, and he explains how this affected him personally and his community. This is our only safe space here in the Springs. And so for this to get shot up, like, what are we going to do now? Where are we going to go? Yeah, we can rebuild and, and come together and this, but what about those people that lost their lives for no reason? Like the 18 other 18 that were injured, I could have been one of them. Like it's, it means a lot because again, what are we going to do now? How are we going to feel safe in our, in our city? This was your safe space. Yeah, this was the only LGBTQIA plus space in the entire city of Colorado Springs. It's won awards in independent magazine. It's, I got my start here. Like so many of my friends I've met here and people that I call loved ones, and now it's shattered. You can hear the pain in his voice. You can hear how distraught he feels and how hopeless the situation is, because we all know that this is going to continue. The right isn't going to stop demonizing queer people. They know that their words are going to directly lead to violence, and they want this. They're continuing to lie just days after a terrorist attack on the LGBTQ plus community. Take Tim Pool, for example. He responded to Kurt Schlichter, who equated all LGBTQ plus people with pedophiles, and Tim Pool responded saying, we shouldn't tolerate pedophiles grooming kids. Club Q had a grooming event. How do you prevent the violence and stop the grooming? So he's doing two things here. First of all, he's admitting that their rhetoric has catalyzed violence against queer people, but he's also equating any LGBTQ plus space with a grooming event. Because Club Q hosted a drag show, by default, it is a pedophile grooming organization, and maybe they got what was coming to them. I mean, do you understand? They're still lying. Even after their lies caused deaths, they're still lying. Again, queer people are not groomers. They are normal human beings with hopes and dreams. And the victims had names, by the way. Ashley Paul, she was a 35-year-old mother with an 11-year-old daughter, and her husband described her as having a huge heart who helped kids who were in foster care find homes. Now, she wasn't a member of the LGBTQ plus community, but she was an ally, and she went to Club Q to see a comedian perform. She wanted to have a good time, but she was murdered in an act of violence against the queer community. Daniel Aston, he was a 28-year-old trans man who was also a bartender at Club Q, and he moved to Colorado Springs to be closer to his parents. His mother, Sabrina, described him as always smiling, always happy and silly, and now he's gone. She will never see that smile again of her son. Derek Rump was a 38-year-old bartender at Club Q, and according to his brother-in-law, he moved to Colorado Springs over 10 years ago to start a new life and live out his dreams, and he had a brother that passed away just a few months earlier, so the pain and heartbreak of his family I mean, it's unimaginable. They must not even know how to process the news that another one of their children is now dead. 
Kelly Loving. She was a 40-year-old trans woman, and her sister Tiffany describes her as a loving person who always tried to help others out. Her younger friend, Natalie Sky Bingham, describes her as a mother figure who mentored her during her own transition and says that she doesn't know if she'd be around had it not been for Kelly. Now, Kelly was the victim of anti-trans violence before, so this isn't her first brush with violence. But it is going to be her last because she passed away. Now, Bingham, Kelly's friend or daughter, in effect, uh, said that she talked with Kelly before the shooting took place. And Kelly was really proud of the outfit that she had on. So on the night that she died, she felt pretty. She felt beautiful, which was really comforting for Natalie to know about the person who she viewed as her mother. Raymond Green Vance, he was a 22-year-old working at FedEx, and he was trying to save up enough money to get his first apartment. Now, he loved video games, he was very close with his cousins, and he was described as a selfless young adult by his family. He was at Club Q with his girlfriend, Cassandra. They were together since middle school, and her parents and his girlfriend's father, Richard Fierro, ended up stopping the shooter and saving countless lives. Now I want to go to Raymond's girlfriend's father who was there and because of his heroic actions, because he chose to intervene, him and a trans woman heroically saved countless lives. If they hadn't stepped in and stopped the shooter, then who knows how many more people would have been slaughtered. So we're going to look at what he has to say here and he's going to recall the events. This is, again, pretty hard to watch, but let's listen here. I grabbed him by the back of his little cheap-ass armor thing, and I pulled him down. The young man that was, that was late, he was hiding there, had jumped up with me. I don't know if he helped pull me to hold him down or not. I have no idea, okay? That guy did the same act, I, amazing. Pull the dude down, pin him against the side, and just started, oh, I think he went for his pistol? I don't know, either way, I grabbed the pistol from him, and then I told the guy, move the AR, the kid in front of me, he was at his head. I said, move the AR, get the AR away from him. And the kid did it. And then I started wailing on this dude. And I'm on top of him. I'm a big dude, man, and this guy was bigger. And I, I just kept wailing on him. And I told the kid in front of me, kick him in his head, keep kicking him in his head. I'm yelling 911, somebody call 911. And I'm beating this guy, this guy's trying to wiggle. He's trying to get his, his ammo, his guns. One of the, the performers uh, walked by or was running by and I told her, kick this guy, kick this guy. And she took her high heel and stuffed it in his face or his head or whatever she could hit. I was in mode. I was, I was doing what I did, I do downrange, you know? I, tra I trained for this. I don't want to ever do this. I, I didn't even retire because I was just, I was done doing this stuff. It was too much. And uh, I, I, I'm, you know, it came in handy and, and I got to protect my, my kid. I lost my kid's boyfriend. I tried. I tried to have everybody in there. I still feel bad that there's five people. <laughs> There's five people that didn't come home. And this this guy, I told him while I was eating him, I said, I'm gonna kill you, man, because you tried to kill my friends. My family was in there. That man is a hero. Without a doubt, he is a hero. And he may not be a member to the LGBTQ plus community, but he knows that queer people are not groomers. He knows that every single life matters, which is why he risked his own life to stop this murderer. But do you want to know what the right is saying about him? 
they're demonizing this hero as well. Jack Posobiec, for example, wrote this on Truth Social. Are we just not supposed to talk about the U.S. Army major taking his family down to the local drag club for a night out? It's, it's almost shocking to read that tweet aloud. Somebody actually wrote that. Somebody actually wrote that. Someone with a gigantic audience. Rather than calling Richard Fierro a hero, which he is, you're implying that he is a groomer or a pedophile. Their heartlessness knows no bounds and their lies will never stop. And people don't believe me when I say this, but you need to listen. They want queer people dead. They're not going to suddenly have a change of heart when they see that their words led to violence. They're going to take that as validation that what they're doing is working and they will continue to do it. They don't care about queer people. They don't think that we are human beings. We are subhuman. We are inferior. And they think that a death of a queer person is not comparable to the death of another person who happens to be cis or straight. They don't view queer people as human beings, which is why they feel no guilt, no remorse whatsoever when this crazy person walks in to a club queue and slaughters them. They're sick. They're genuinely twisted people. And again, the right will never, ever stop. They have no capacity for remorse or guilt. They will continue to call queer people groomers and pedophiles, and nothing is going to stop them from doing that. There's no level of guilt, no amount of bloodshed that will get them to see the light all of a sudden. They are twisted individuals, and they want more violence. And because they know that this works, they're only going to ramp up the rhetoric that equates all queer people with groomers and pedophiles. Now, I don't know what else to say about the situation. It's hard to find the words to express how disgusted I am with the right. But I do want to share uh, something from Brandon Wolf. This is a Pulse nightclub shooting survivor. And I think that he said everything perfectly. Everything that I was feeling, he put it into words much more eloquently than I ever could. So I want to leave you with what he has to say about the situation. Right-wing grifters, including politicians like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, they've been spewing this vile, hateful rhetoric about LGBTQ people. They've been trafficking in some of the oldest, darkest tropes against our community. They've been accusing us of posing a threat to children simply because we exist on planet Earth. And we warned them that inevitably this would result in violence, but they just couldn't help themselves. They couldn't help themselves from crafting one more fundraising email or hitting send on one more grotesque tweet. They couldn't help themselves as the temperature around the country continued to rise, as young people told us that life was getting less and less safe for them. They couldn't help themselves as armed protesters started showing up at drag shows across the country or when white supremacists were being arrested outside of pride festivals. They couldn't help themselves when children's hospitals in Boston and other cities were getting bomb threats, having to install airport security terminals to keep people safe. They couldn't help themselves when a donut shop was firebombed for daring to advertise a drag show. And now five people went to a space that was supposed to be safe for them, a space like the one I knew well at Pulse Nightclub, and they came out in body bags. Dozens of people were injured, scars they're going to carry forever. An entire community was terrorized. They paid the price for this short-sighted, cynical, and sinister hate that these people have been pumping into the ecosystem. I am angry because I am tired 
of asking, of begging, of screaming and scratching and clawing for people to just see us as human. See us as your family members, your neighbors, your friends. Please, I am begging you to treat us with a basic level of decency and respect. I'm angry because we deserve to live. Those people deserve to live, Joy. The right wing's response to the Club Q massacre has been downright disturbing, but some responses have been far worse than others. But the worst one came from Tucker Carlson, unsurprisingly, where one of his guests effectively justified the violence against queer people. And the rhetoric isn't just getting increasingly genocidal. I think that we've crossed that line to where this is explicitly genocidal rhetoric. Now, I'm going to play a very short clip from Tucker Carlson's program, but before we do that, I want to read an article that gives us a little bit of context about what him and his guest were talking about. This is courtesy of HuffPost. The Fox News host opened his segment by ticking off a list of his tropes characterizing gender-affirming care for trans youth as child abuse and suggesting that teaching children about the existence of gay and trans people equated to sexual exploitation. All while arguing he had nothing at all against gay people. Then he introduced his guest, Jamie Mitchell, the founder of an anti-trans coalition of gays called Gays Against Groomers, which pushes the demonizing narrative that having conversations with children about gender identity is somehow grooming, sexualizing, and indoctrinating them. So now that you have the context, we're going to watch a short clip from this conversation and what she says is genuinely shocking and she says this on national television with no pushback just days after a massacre at a queer space right i mean it shouldn't have to be said but what is anti-lgbtq that these people need to understand and what is putting our community in great danger is uh you know claiming that all of us support this and just associating all of us with this um you know, saying that groomer is an anti-LGBTQ slur, that is doing irreparable damage to us uh, as a whole and is putting a really large target on our backs. And unfortunately, you know, the tragedy that happened in Colorado Springs the other night, uh, you know, it was expected and predictable. Um, we all within Gays Against Groomers saw this coming from a mile away. Yeah. And sadly, I don't think it's going to stop until we uh, end this evil agenda that is attacking children. They're just saying the quiet part loud now. They are literally on national television justifying violence against queer people based on lies that they've been pushing. Now, before we get to the crux of her comments there, she says that saying that groomer is an anti-LGBTQ slur, that is doing irreparable damage to us. She's referring to pushback from people who don't like that Republicans effectively call anyone who disagrees with them groomers. And it has become a slur because that's the way that you all are using it. If you look at some of the videos that I've produced where I talk about LGBTQ plus issues, right-wing commenters call me a groomer simply because they disagree with me. Queer people on Twitter have been called groomers. Jamie Mitchell herself called actor Ron Perlman a groomer for speaking out against Ron DeSantis's don't say gay law. So the reason why groomer is now being treated as a slur is because you and your right-wing friends have bastardized that term. Grooming is a real thing that happens to children in, in this country. Priests, for example, groom and molest children. It is a thing that is bad and dangerous, but what you say is grooming isn't actually grooming. Their standards is, well, you know, a drag queen was around a kid, therefore that's grooming. That's sexualizing children. Gender-affirming care is tantamount to sexual exploitation. This is what they say. So your lies have made it so that way the term grooming 
has lost all meaning. And grooming, to be clear, is bad. The overwhelming majority of people in the LGBTQ plus community everywhere are against grooming. But what you say is grooming is not grooming. But you say that to justify violence against your own community, Jamie. Now, she says here that the violence isn't going to stop until we end this evil agenda that is attacking children. Now, she's referring to a number of things, presumably. Gender-affirming care for trans youth. Family-friendly pride events. Drag, uh, drag queen story hour. Things of that nature. She views that as attacking children and sexualizing children. Therefore, if that doesn't stop, then the violence is going to continue because what they're doing is evil. Now, the reason why that statement from her should frighten everyone is because that is the same logic that Nazis used to justify the Holocaust. In an article published in the journal History in the Making, author Tracy Martin describes the propaganda campaign that Nazis used to demonize Jewish people in an effort to get non-Jewish Germans to think that the Holocaust was an acceptable solution to the so-called Jewish problem. Jewish people were portrayed as criminals, parasites, plagues, and serpents, and it was suggested that genocide against them was justified because if you didn't destroy them, then they'd destroy you first. And now we're seeing the same exact tactic being used against members of the LGBTQ plus community to justify violence against them. And this rhetoric is not relegated to fringe areas of the internet. It has gone mainstream. Tim Pool, with a platform of millions of people, said we shouldn't tolerate pedophiles grooming kids. Club Q had a grooming event. How do we prevent the violence and stop the grooming? Now, there's zero evidence that any grooming or sexual exploitation or molestation went on at Club Q. But he's saying here, since they were doing something evil, they were grooming kids, presumably to molest them. Therefore, the violence is justifiable. That's the subtext there. That's someone like Tim Pool, mainstreaming fascist rhetoric, essentially justifying genocide against an entire community. And Lance from the Serves points out how the right's response to mass shootings has changed with time. They went from offering thoughts and prayers to downplaying the role that guns have to just straight up justifying it because queer spaces have become grooming zones for children, according to right-wingers. Their language has become explicitly genocidal to where they are justifying violence and genocide against queer people, all based on lies. This is what Jamie Mitchell views as sexual exploitation of children. She gave us one example. No normal adult has any interest in acting this way and dressing this way in front of children. So listen, you can keep calling us bigots until you're blue in the face, but I'm going to just tell you right now that there's nothing that's going to stop us from fighting to protect children from these groomers and to get them out of our community. That is why I started the coalition Gays Against Groomers. Her example of grooming is literally just a queer person in the presence of a child. That's grooming to them. That to them is the sexual exploitation of kids. Because if a kid learns that gay and trans people exist, well, then they might want to be gay and trans because clearly it's a choice. So that's a danger to them. You're sexually exploiting them. That's the actual logic that they're using. Now, there are things that I find controversial, right? Toddlers and tiaras, these creepy children beauty pageants, taking kids to Hooters, taking your kid to a game where there's cheerleaders with skimpy clothing. Like, you would think that based on their standards, they would view that also as equally problematic, but they don't. And it's because they have an agenda. They very clearly are narrowly targeting LGBTQ plus people 
because they don't like LGBTQ plus people. They want to erase LGBTQ plus people from existence. Now, if you're wondering why Tucker Carlson didn't push back, it's because he doesn't care if gay people die. In fact, he probably prefers it. So the editor-in-chief of Populous shared this image from Tucker Carlson's yearbook, and you can see that it says he was part of the Dan White Society. Now, he explains, Dan White Society was young Tucker Carlson's joke about how it's funny to murder gay people. Now, for those unaware, Dan White is the individual who assassinated Harvey Milk, the first openly gay man ever elected to public office in the United States. Tucker Carlson thinks it's funny that he was part of the Dan White Club. This is who we're dealing with here. But it's not just Tucker Carlson, the individual Jamie Mitchell, who tries to speak as an authority figure on gay issues since she is a lesbian herself. Well, here's what she believes gender affirming care is comparable to. What's happening now would make, you know, I think Joseph Mengele, uh, I believe that was his name, you know, the Nazi doctor. Um, he, you know, this puts him to shame. They are, they are basically using an entire generation of children as lab rats for this sick ideology um, and they're full steam ahead with it. And, and they see us as a definite roadblock um, and a threat to that. She's comparing medically necessary gender affirming care to Nazi experimentation. These people are genuinely sick and they're demanding that you stop giving children with gender dysphoria gender affirming care which means you use their preferred pronouns let them dress the way that they want to dress call them by a new name she's saying essentially that if you don't stop that then the violence against the lgbtq plus community is justified and it will indeed continue so in other words if you don't kill yourselves we're going to kill you because we all know what happens when we deny gender affirming care to trans youth and I'm sorry, but hiding kids away from the existence of queer people is just impossible because queer people exist all throughout the world. I mean, they're your cashiers, they're your bank tellers, they're your friends, they're your family members. So if you believe that a queer person being in the presence of a kid is tantamount to sexual exploitation and that said sexual exploitation justifies violence against this community, then you're just outright calling for violence against this community. Now, Jamie Mitchell is not a representative of the queer community, even if she is a lesbian herself. This is somebody who is a right-wing propagandist. In a lengthy Twitter thread, user White Rose AFA found out that she follows and promotes open white supremacists. And even though she's Jewish herself, she shared anti-Semitic dog whistles about George Soros. She shared Islamophobic content. And in response to Michael Harriet discussing police brutality against black people, she responded with the racist black crime statistic trope, justifying their deaths at the hands of police, saying despite making up only 13% of the population, blacks commit over 50% of the crime. Perhaps that has something to do with it. So basically saying these police are justified in killing unarmed black people. She's called for public executions of public figures, and she's even promoted the great replacement conspiracy theory on Telegram. So that's who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a person who is deep within that right wing bubble, who is using her identity as a gay woman to spread homophobia and fear against her own community. It's like Dave Rubin, but much, much more gross and disgusting than Dave Rubin. And she thinks that in the event fascists choose to do a full-on genocide 
against queer people. Not that they're already, you know, uh, not trying that legally, but she thinks that because she's siding with the bigots, they're going to spare her. Nope. You're going into the blender too. If they decide to kill us all, Jamie, sorry, fascists don't want queer people to exist. Even the ones that are trying to aid and abet the fascists in their own demise. That's just, that's how it's always been throughout history. So this is really, really gross. And I need people to understand once again, that these people, they want violence against the gay community. They want trans people dead and any way that they can facilitate the deaths of this community, they're going to do that. So if that means working insane people into frenzies so that way they open fire in queer spaces, denying gender affirming care to trans youth so they commit suicide, any way they can see the bloodshed happen is a victory for them. So that's what we're working with here. I, I think that it's, it's dark, it's disturbing, but we need to know what we're working with so we can prepare ourselves and protect ourselves. I think it's evident to most reasonable people that the Supreme Court is currently facing a massive legitimacy crisis, and for good reason. And I'd argue that this legitimacy crisis not only rivals that of the Lochner era, but surpasses it because it's not just that they're handing down incredibly unpopular reactionary decisions, but it's also because there's very apparently a lack of ethical standards among Supreme Court justices. Take Justice Clarence Thomas, for example, his wife used her influence and proximity to a Supreme Court justice to try to overturn the results of a democratic election. She actually reached out to lawmakers in states to get them to send in rogue electors to the Electoral College to overturn the results of the last election, the last presidential election. And this is something that you, you can't recover from, especially considering the fact that there's been no accountability for her at this point in time. And Justice Clarence Thomas hasn't even recused himself related to cases involving January 6th, which is relevant given that his wife is now a part of that insurrection attempt. So when you see things like this, it's obvious why Americans have lost faith in the Supreme Court as an institution. But it gets worse because, as The New York Times explains, as the Supreme Court investigates the extraordinary leaked this spring of a draft opinion of the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, a former anti-abortion leader has come forward claiming that another breach occurred in a 2014 landmark case involving contraception and religious rights. In a letter to Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. and in interviews with the New York Times, the Reverend Rob Schenk said he was told the outcome of the 2014 case weeks before it was announced. He used that information to prepare a public relations push record show and he said that at the last minute, he tipped off the president of Hobby Lobby, the craft store chain owned by Christian evangelicals that was the winning party in the case. Now, Reverend Rob Shank was the leader of a group called Faith and Action. So this group was an evangelical organization that was well connected, not just to other evangelical organizations, but to donors. And they had an association with various Supreme Court justices. And thanks to an article published by Politico back in July, we learned how Shank's Faith and Action group has been influencing Supreme Court justices for years now, flying individuals to D.C. to visit and entertain sitting Supreme Court justices such as Thomas, Alito, and Scalia back when he was alive, and the specific intent of these visits was to influence the decisions of Supreme Court justices. Now, we're learning about the 2014 leak because of Reverend Schenck. And the reason why he's speaking out now is because he's split 
with evangelical groups. So he's blowing the whistle. And when you learn about the 2014 leak, I don't think that this affects the legitimacy of the court simply because, oh no, leakers are bad. It's who leaked this decision that makes it so incriminating. The New York Times continues, Mr. Shank, who used to lead an evangelical nonprofit in Washington, said he learned about the Hobby Lobby opinion because he had worked for years to exploit the court's permeability. He gained access through faith, through favors traded with gatekeepers, and through wealthy donors to his organization, abortion opponents, whom he called stealth missionaries. In early June of 2014, an Ohio couple who were Mr. Shank's star donors shared a meal with Justice Alito and his wife, Martha Ann. A day later, Gail Wright, one of the pair, contacted Mr. Shank, according to an email reviewed by the Times. Rob, if you want some interesting news, please call. No emails, she wrote. So do you understand what Shank is alleging here? So back in 2014, a donor who Shank knew had dinner with Justice Alito and his wife. Alito then presumably relayed the result of the 2014 Hobby Lobby case to that donor. They then relayed that information to Shank, and then Shank was able to use his organization to prepare a PR blitz to save face, to help Hobby Lobby prepare statements, whatever. He's saying that Alito leaked the 2014 Hobby Lobby decision. Now, let me remind you that after we learned about the Dobbs leak, Alito called the leak a grave betrayal. But here we have substantial evidence that Alito himself was leaking the outcome of Supreme Court decisions to huge donors connected to this evangelical organization. Now... It gets worse when you consider the fact that the Supreme Court launched an investigation into the Dobbs leaker, but we never learned who that leaker was. Hmm. It's a little bit uh, suspicious, is it not? Now, Schenck came forward with this information two months after Roberts launched the inquiry into the Dobbs leaker because he thought that his story was obviously relevant. He essentially told Chief Justice John Roberts, hey, I know that you're trying to figure out who the leaker was, but Alito leaked an opinion to one of my donors back in 2014. Maybe this is relevant, but Shank did not get a response from Chief Justice Roberts, which indicates that Roberts knows that Alito at least leaked the decision back in 2014, and he's protecting Alito. And if Alito leaked that decision, is it plausible to think maybe he leaked the 2022 decision, especially learning that that leak kind of helped solidify the positions of individuals like uh, Gorsuch or Kavanaugh, whoever John Roberts was trying to get to kind of move from the total repeal or overturning a Roe v. Wade to like a 15 week abortion ban, just accepting the Mississippi law. Like, do you understand how incriminating this is? Not only do we have evidence because of this story that Alito has leaked Supreme Court decisions, but that Chief Justice John Roberts is covering for Alito by refusing to respond to this very important individual who had relevant details to that investigation. As Congressman Wander Jones puts it, this article by the New York Times strongly suggests Justice Alito leaked the 2014 opinion in Hobby Lobby and describes a conspiracy by the far-right donor class to influence the Supreme Court justices. But one more thing that Congressman Jones didn't point out is it indicates that Chief Justice John Roberts is covering Justice Alito's ass. 
Jesus, they are so shameless. Now, as a result, Congress is pissed and they want answers. There's been calls for ethics probes. And as HuffPost explains, top Democrats on the House and Senate Judiciary Committees demanded on Sunday that the Supreme Court Justice Chief Justice John Roberts comply with their investigation into the court's refusal to abide by ethics laws. And if the court continues to suggest it's not serious about policing itself, Congress will step in, warned the joint letter from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Representative Hank Johnson chairs of the subcommittees overseeing the federal judiciary in their respective chambers. Their letter to Roberts on Sunday followed up on a prior inquiry White House and Johnson made on September 7th after Politico first reported on Shank's influence campaign. At the time, they wrote to Roberts to encourage the court to adopt a formal ethics code. They demanded answers about how many justices were provided travel, dinners, lodging, and other hospitality from donors connected to Shank's influence operation and why the justices did not disclose these gifts on their annual financial disclosure statements. And I know the answer to that. It's because they're all corrupt, they lack ethics, and they need to be impeached. So this is why the Supreme Court is currently dealing with the legitimacy crisis. When you have coup plotters on the Supreme Court, like Clarence Thomas, when you have justices who are leaking opinions to donors who they obviously are very connected to and trust, otherwise he wouldn't have leaked that information, then... This is why nobody trusts the court. So the Supreme Court is moving towards this climate where we just ignore what they say, since everything that they say is politically motivated and perhaps motivated by their connections with evangelical organizations. It's just, it's shocking, but so unsurprising, right? I wouldn't be surprised if we learned more about how, you know, they're in cahoots with other religious organizations because these evangelicals on the Supreme Court, they have shown that they don't care about the Constitution, they just care about enacting their theocratic agenda, forcing all of, all of us to live in their handmaid's tale fantasy or whatever it is. And it's just, it's sickening, but it's par for the course when there are no ethical standards for these justices. So, of course, they're going to be corrupt. Of course, they're going to just be brazenly uh, acting in the interest of far-right donors because these are partisan actors, not objective interpreters of the Constitution, contrary to popular belief. In a legal filing Thursday night, the Biden administration sided with this man, even though its own office of the Director of National Intelligence previously wrote, quote, we assess that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey, to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, unquote. At issue was a 2020 lawsuit against 37-year-old Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, and 28 others in D.C. Federal District Court, accusing them of, quote, acting in a conspiracy and with premeditation to kidnap, bind, drug, torture, and assassinate Jamal Khashoggi, a resident of the U.S., who wrote for the Washington Post at the time. The 2018 murder took place at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, Khashoggi's body was dismembered with a bone saw, one source told the New York Times. His remains were never found. Now, MBS denies ordering the murder, but then-candidate Joe Biden did not believe him, saying it shocked him to his very soul and would change how he, as president, would treat the Saudis. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. 
But as president, Mr. Biden did decide to sell more weapons to Saudi Arabia, $650 million worth in 2021. And then earlier this year, met with and fist bumped MBS. Biden said he brought up the murder in their meeting, but it clearly annoyed him when we in the news media focused on this. This week, the Biden Justice Department says it sided with MBS against the lawsuit because MBS is now prime minister, quote, the sitting head of government and accordingly is immune from this suit per precedent and international law. But that promotion to prime minister by his father, King Solomon, who would normally hold that title, that promotion came last month. Just a few days before the Biden administration was supposed to weigh in on this immunity issue. As Fred Ryan, the Washington Post's publisher and CEO, noted in a statement Friday, quote, while legitimate heads of government should be protected against frivolous lawsuits, the Saudis' decision to make MBS prime minister was a cynical, calculated effort to manipulate the law and shield him from accountability. Ryan says Biden was essentially, quote, granting a license to kill to one of the world's most egregious human rights abusers who was responsible for the cold-blooded murder of Jamal Khashoggi, unquote. It is worth noting, though the court did invite the Biden administration to weigh in on this issue of immunity, the Biden administration did not have to do so. They could have stayed silent. The U.S. has a long and shameful history when it comes to American presidents going along with Saudi human rights abuses because they control so much of the fossil fuels to which our country is so addicted. But there's only one politician who promised he would be different, who pledged that he would make this thug a pariah, who made his stark morality on this one man such a vivid campaign issue, and that's Joe Biden. You just listened to a very powerful rebuke of the Biden administration after they decided to kowtow to the murderous Saudi Arabian regime. And I don't usually say this, but good job, Jake Tapper. You actually crushed it there. And this gets even more embarrassing for Joe Biden when you consider the fact that according to the Wall Street Journal's Middle East Bureau chief, Michael Amman, Mohammed bin Salman privately mocked Biden and made fun of his gaffes and even questioned his mental acuity. And yet the Biden administration literally lets him get away with murder, refusing to do even the bare minimum, just staying out and letting Khashoggi's family potentially seek justice legally or not selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. None of us are advocating that we go to war with Saudi Arabia. That's not what we're asking, but we're simply calling for the bare minimum so we don't further embolden this murderous regime. But we won't stop doing that. Even though Biden said he wouldn't sell weapons to Saudi Arabia, he's doing that because, well, they're used defensively and not offensively, which is something that you can't prove. And given how Saudi Arabia has used our weapons and training to do a genocide in Yemen, I'd argue that I don't believe what the Biden administration is selling us. As the Washington Post reports, as global attention focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, the Saudi-led coalition carried out more than 150 airstrikes on civilian targets in Yemen, including homes, hospitals, and communication towers, according to the Yemen Data Project. It was the latest uptick in bombing during a grinding and often overlooked civil war that has appended the lives of Yemeni civilians for the better part of a decade and spawned one of the world's 
most severe humanitarian crises. Hundreds of thousands have died from the fighting or its indirect consequences, such as hunger, the United Nations says. The devastating air campaign alone, carried out by a Saudi-led coalition, has killed almost 24,000 people, a number that includes combatants and nearly 9,000 civilians, according to conservative estimates by the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, which monitors war zones around the world. A new analysis by the Washington Post and Security Force Monitor at Columbia Law School's Human Rights Institute provides the most complete picture yet of the depth and breadth of U.S. support for the Saudi-led air campaign, revealing that a substantial portion of the air raids were carried out by jets developed, maintained, and sold by U.S. companies and by pilots who were trained by the U.S. military. But yet, Joe Biden won't stop selling them weapons, won't stay out of it, so that way Khashoggi's family can seek justice, and he has the audacity to fist bump this dictator who's a murderer who makes fun of him behind his back. It is so embarrassing on so many levels, and it's so bad that fellow corporate Democrats like Tim Kaine are calling out Joe Biden. In a press release, Tim Kaine writes, as disappointing as it is that the U.S. has been unwilling to hold MBS to account for the assassination of a U.S. resident journalist, last night's announcement by the State Department is even more egregious. The case is a civil suit filed by the friends and family of Khashoggi in the hopes of acquiring even a modicum of justice from the Saudi defendants. The U.S. is not a party to the case. The Saudi defendants have full opportunity to defend their own actions in the federal proceedings. The court offered the administration the option to express an option on the question of whether sovereign immunity doctrines protect MBS from the suit. The administration had no duty to take a proactive position and could have simply refrained from doing so. Instead, it has chosen to take the side of the party that our own intelligence agencies have concluded is responsible for the murder and is standing against family members seeking recompense for this gross injustice. And also something that I don't say very frequently, good job, Tim Kaine. I agree with you. So the Biden administration has done something so egregious that individuals who don't usually call him out and criticize him this sharply are calling him out. It is genuinely beyond reason. And I just, I don't know what to say, honestly. I guess the silver lining is that perhaps this will renew calls for Congress to use the War Powers Act to end U.S. complicity with Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen. And as Common Dreams explains, in June, 48 bipartisan U.S. lawmakers introduced a War Powers Resolution to end the nation's unauthorized involvement in the Saudi-led war. The following month, Senators Bernie Sanders, Patrick Leahy, and Elizabeth Warren proposed a measure in the upper chamber. Interviewed for an Intercept article published on Monday, U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar, one of the 48 co-sponsors of the House resolution, asserted that our foreign policy should not be based on a dependence on oil or the geopolitical whims of foreign despots. It should be based on the rule of law and human rights. Yeah, very well said. And let me remind you that last time when Congress passed the War Powers Act to end the U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen, it got to Trump's desk and he vetoed it. So we have now um, another administration refusing to stand up to uh, this murderous dictator. And again, we're asking for the bare minimum here. Just stop giving them weapons that you know they're using against innocent civilians. But we can't even get that. Can't get justice for Khashoggi. Can't get justice for the people of Yemen. And it's all because of oil. 
essentially. It, it's, it's just so disgusting and beyond the pale, but very predictable for U.S. presidents who have been too afraid to stand up to people who are supposed to be our allies. So it's embarrassing, but it's exactly what we've come to expect from the U.S. empire, who doesn't give a damn about human rights. I've long maintained that billionaires should not exist because it is absolutely unjustifiable to have people with that much wealth when we still see people sleeping out on the streets, when we still see children going hungry, to let individuals like Elon Musk accumulate so much wealth that even if he lived to be 10,000 years old, he still wouldn't be able to spend all of it. I mean, it's just disgusting. And most importantly, it is a policy failure. And that's the point that author Anand Giridharadis makes in a guest opinion piece for the New York Times titled, This Week, Billionaires Made a Strong Case for Abolishing Themselves. Now, Anand goes on to explain how billionaires themselves inadvertently made the case for them to not exist, citing Elon Musk as one of the prime examples by running Twitter into the ground. But he also mentions Jeff Bezos and Sam Bankman-Fried. And we're going to dive into his article a little bit. But first, let's listen to what he has to say. He makes the pitch using Elon Musk as an example on MSNBC. And what he says is spot on, in my opinion. First of all, I think something we often forget as Americans is that billionaires exist as a class of people who have that much money at our collective pleasure, right? It is a policy choice to allow some people to accumulate that much money, hundreds of billions of dollars in the case of people in the United States, before everybody has the chance to live with dignity. Right? Other countries make that choice very differently. We have chosen historically to heavily prioritize having billionaires over having dignity for all people. And that's a choice I would just start by saying that we could make differently in the future. And so I wrote the piece to try to remind people uh, of that choice we have. And last week was remarkable. I mean, I, I've written about billionaires for years and talked about uh, these issues on the show, but it was hard to imagine a week uh, when there was so many spectacular reminders of the way in which this kind of billionaire class is, is inconsistent with democracy as we live it. Elon Musk uh, is, is, you know, is a sort of adolescent in his his 50s. Everybody can see that. I don't think anybody would say Elon Musk is a normal 51-year-old man um, who has bought this platform that he himself calls a global town square, certainly functions, has that kind of social importance. And because of what is so evidently his own feeble limitations. He's just not, he's a limited man. His limitations become all of our problem. They ramify into all of our lives. They start to, you know, un, uh, unleash anti-Semitism because he wants Kanye back on the platform. And Kanye announces Shalom when he comes back after his, his big uh, anti-Semitism benders in recent years. He brings back Donald Trump, who's, who's kind of unleashed the, 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 the white nationalist demons in this country uh, on that platform and off in ways that are obviously have caused us to come to the brink of losing our democracy. Elon Musk's big idea is let's bring him back. He's gutted the company. Photos of him from the company at a so-called code meeting show that there's basically like no women left working around him. It's just a big sausage fest. He is absolutely correct there. It is a policy choice to allow people to accumulate that much wealth before everyone in this country is able to live with dignity. And to have that much power as a billionaire, I don't think people fully comprehend the ways in which they are able to control society and bend democracy to their will. And Elon Musk really demonstrated that 
very clearly. He took over Twitter, which is a platform that is essentially this global town square and now we're all subject to his whims we're subject to the mood of an unhinged 50 year old adolescent as anon described him and there's really no rhyme or reason or any guidelines that he's following to the policy choices that he's choosing to enact on Twitter. He likes Kanye West. Kanye West is a friend with him, seemingly. So he chose to bring Kanye West back. But yet, when it comes to bringing Alex Jones back, that's a no-go for Elon Musk because he personally knows how painful it is to lose a child. And what Alex Jones did to the parents of Sandy Hook victims makes him irredeemable in Elon Musk's eyes. So. There's no standard that he's using. And, and Twitter is just one example. What's stopping some other billionaire from buying YouTube and changing it radically, wiping all of us out on this platform? They can control our lives. They buy politicians. So this case with Elon Musk and Twitter, it really demonstrates why we should not allow these people to amass that much wealth. Now, Anand in his article goes on to talk about other billionaires. He writes this about Jeff Bezos. On Monday, Jeff Bezos made a big splash when CNN released an interview in which he announced that he was giving the great bulk of his more than $120 billion fortune away with a focus on fighting climate change and promoting unity. That sure sounds impressive, but his gesture wasn't about generosity any more than Herschel Walker's Senate candidacy in Georgia is for the children. After all, the money Mr. Bezos is now magnanimously distributing was made through his dehumanizing labor practices, his tax avoidance, his influence peddling, his monopolistic power, and other tactics that make him a cause of the problems of modern American life rather than a swashbuckling solution. It's too soon to tell if Mr. Bezos's philanthropy will help others, but what's certain is that it will help Mr. Bezos a lot. Mega philanthropists of his ilk tend to give through foundations foundations, which they establish in ways that save them an immense amount in taxes, sometimes merely by moving the money from one of their own accounts to another. Giving will also burnish Mr. Bezos's reputation, in that way preserving and protecting his opportunity to earn yet more money and to do more social damage. And it will increase his already gigantic power over public life. For plutocrats like Mr. Bezos, that may be the biggest payoff of all. Their wealth is so vast that by distributing even a small fraction of it, they skew the public agenda toward the kind of social change they can stomach, the kind that doesn't threaten them or their class. Very well said. Now, this is something that billionaires do all the time. Before Jeff Bezos announced that he was going to be giving away most of his fortune to fight climate change, the CEO of Patagonia announced that he was giving away his entire company to fight climate change. However, as Adam Conover brilliantly put it in a recent YouTube video, there is no such thing as a benevolent billionaire, and the Patagonia's billionaire CEO and announcement was nothing more than a clever PR ploy to help him avoid taxes. Let's listen. Not only was this donation designed to help Chenard avoid billions of dollars in taxes, the fact that it's even possible for a billionaire to pull this maneuver is an unmitigated disaster for the planet and for our democracy. And when we swallow PR like this, we are literally falling for the oldest billionaire bullshit in the book. Now, a lot of people found this story believable, including me at first, because it fits Chenard's carefully cultivated public image. He's been described for years as the reluctant billionaire, a frugal rock climber who just loved making gear for his friends, then tripped and accidentally started a $3 billion company. People tell stories about Chenard eating cans of cat food to save money, and he famously still drives a Subaru instead of a fancy car. The dude supposedly doesn't even own a cell phone, which is maybe why he doesn't know that human food is just as cheap as cat food. You weren't saving money, Yvonne. You were just being weird. 
And as far as corporations go, Patagonia does have a solid environmental record. They've donated over $140 million to a huge number of organizations, promoting everything from land conservation to biodiversity to sustainable agriculture to the end of fossil fuels. Now, Chouinard said that he wanted the company's commitment to the planet to continue after his death. So instead of selling the company to some corner-cutting capitalist who would start powering the fleeced vest factories with coal and, I don't know, cancel the Batgirl movie again, he decided to donate all of his stock to a nonprofit organization with a mission of helping the planet. In a New York Times piece so glowing it might as well have been written by his publicist, Chouinard said that hopefully this donation will influence a new form of capitalism that doesn't end with a few rich people and a whole bunch of poor people. And his own accountant said that he'll receive no tax benefit for his donation whatsoever. But if you want the straight story about a billionaire's finances, it might make sense to ask someone other than the guy who cooks the books for him. The truth is, if Chouinard really just wanted to make sure that Patagonia's value you stayed intact, he didn't need to donate it to a nonprofit. He could have just given all $3 billion worth of shares to his kids. They could have kept running the company according to Daddy Dearest's wishes and lovingly rapped about him at corporate board meetings. So why didn't he do that? Simple. He would have had to pay $1.2 billion in gift taxes. And Yvonne's a good billionaire, so he doesn't like paying taxes. I mean, why should he have to pay for the roads his products are transported on, the schools and universities his workers are educated at, the GPS system that he uses to track his shipments, and the government research into heart attacks and cancer that have kept him alive until the ripe old age of 83? I mean, he's self-made, right? He did it all by himself. Now I know what you're thinking. Adam, he didn't pay taxes because he did something better. He donated it to charity. Well. Let's take a look at how charitable that donation actually was. 98% of the shares Chouinard donated were given to a brand new environmental nonprofit he formed called the Holdfast Collective. Kind of a weird name, sort of sounds like a mid-2000s Brooklyn indie band, but more about that in a second. The other 2% though were Chouinard's voting shares. These are the shares that let you actually control what the company does. And these shares were given to something called the Patagonia Purpose Trust, which is solely controlled by Chouinard and his family. What this means is that even though all the headlines said Chouinard was donating the company to charity, he and his family will continue to control Patagonia Forever. You know, I didn't know that was how donations worked. When I donate my car to 1-800-CARS-FOR-KIDS, I can't show up the next weekend and take it for a joyride. But Yvonne and his family can. Now, you just watched a small portion of Adam's video, but I would highly encourage you to go to Adam Conover's YouTube channel and watch the entirety of that video. It's 20 minutes long. And throughout the course of that video, he thoroughly eviscerates this notion that a good billionaire is a thing. It's not a thing. There's no such thing as a good billionaire. They all simply exist to amass more and more wealth. They wouldn't have that much wealth had they not been evil in the first place, exploited their own workers, avoided taxes. So this notion of this benevolent billionaire that's going to come and save us all or save the planet, people need to stop believing it because it's stupid. Now, back to Anand Giridharadas' point here, he explains that billionaires, they exist because we allow them to, and we allow them to exist because they're deceiving us. They pretend as if they provide us with a social good when in actuality, they only serve themselves. He continues, Mr. Bankman Freed embodies another pretension of plutocratic benevolence, that of the renegade, the people's billionaire. Like many others, he hawked cryptocurrency as a fight against the establishment, against the big banks, against the powers that be, man. He has said his work was motivated by the ideals of effective altruism, a trendy school of thought that encourages people to go out and make as big a heap of money 
money as they can so that they can use it to heal the world. But as he admitted in an interview this week with Kelsey Piper of Vox, Mr. Bankman-Fried's claims about the ethical nature of his pursuit were an example of this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths and so everyone likes us. Finally, of course, this week there was Donald Trump because let's face it, there's always Donald Trump who has incarnated the most dangerous billionaire pretension of all. That of the hero who in all of the world is the only one who can save us. He gamed the system so effectively that only he knows how to ungame it. He manipulated politicians so much that only he knows how to drain the swamp. He amassed so much money that only he is above corruption. And these are just a couple of examples. Another example is Bill Gates, who for years was seen as this goody two-shoes. Meanwhile, he's chumming it up with Jeffrey Epstein and blocking other countries from developing generic versions of the COVID-19 vaccine, which would save millions of lives. He delayed their efforts because, you know, IP protections, money, profits. So there is no good billionaire. And Anand concludes his article by saying that billionaires aren't our saviors they're our mistakes emphasizing that we as a society choose to allow these threats to democracy to exist and that's not something that should be acceptable so what's the solution well we confiscate the wealth that they stole from their workers we tax them until they are no longer billionaires and i would go much further than others i think that just allowing them to have 999 million dollars is still too much until people are no longer sleeping on the streets until every single child in this country is fed until nobody around the globe is thirsting for water that they don't have access to we should not allow this kind of wealth to exist but this is the outcome of capitalism you know sometimes people like to refer to our system as unfettered capitalism or you know unregulated capitalism and i've heard elizabeth warren say you know capitalism without rules is theft but no this is just capitalism this is always going to be the end result of capitalism, and we're simply in the latest stage of capitalism. And, you know, throughout the earlier stages, uh, stages of capitalism, the wealth wasn't just concentrated in the hands of a few plutocrats. But this was always the end result of capitalism. Capitalism is like a virus, and it seeps into every single institution in our society until it consumes the entire system itself. I mean, think about even the way that elections are run in the United States. You can't win an election unless you raise large sums of money. Our entire system of governance has become commodified. A 2014 Princeton University study by Drs. Gillens and Page found that when it comes to policies that get passed by Congress, it's disproportionately what the wealthy and elites want, not what normal voters want. We have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. So this isn't a case of unregulated or unfettered capitalism. This is just capitalism, period, full stop. And until we move away from this regressive, disgusting, deadly system, then this is always going to be what we have to look forward to. But certainly allowing these plutocrats to exist, allowing this system to kill our planet it's a choice that we made and even if we want to reverse course unfortunately it may be too late so uh really great points by anand a really great video by adam conover i hope that more people will understand that you shouldn't simp for billionaires because this idea that well what if one day i'm a billionaire i wouldn't want anyone to come after my wealth it's not going to happen you are statistically more likely to get bitten by a shark or struck by lightning than you are to become a billionaire 
So simping for billionaires out of the hopes that one day you'll become a billionaire, it's not going to happen. The American dream is dead. So the best that we can do is take that wealth and spread it around so other people can have lives that are dignified. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.